visitor and maybe you haven't been involved in a worship, you have either seen or listened to John David Thompson preaching. He is our regular preacher delivering the word most Sunday mornings. We have determined for the next couple of weeks to give him a bit of a break. He had was a good spot in Matthew 23. We just completed Matthew 23 last week, and a a different discourse begins in Matthew 24. John David is studying that. In a few weeks, we'll be back at the uh, pulpit to deliver deliver, a message from Matthew 24. Can you all hear me okay? I want to make sure. Okay, thanks. So if you will reflect back, if you heard last week's sermon, as I said, John David wrapped up Matthew 23, uh, teaching through. That chapter is all about the woes to the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Jesus clearly and almost embarrassingly exposed their hypocrisy and their sin He exposed their misunderstanding, misguided application of the purposes and intents of God's law and pointed out that they had propagated a self-centered religion, not at all what God had intended. And in this final woe that we heard last week, Jesus wraps up in the midst of it with a rhetorical question. It's the chief question of all mankind, not just to the scribes and Pharisees, He asks, in essence, in light of what he had shared and what he had uncovered about their heart and life and religion, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Certainly the chief question that we all have to ask when it comes to seeing and confronting our own sin. Thankfully, God has not left us without an answer. His word is replete, providing that answer to that chief question. Uh, Arguably, you might agree, if you've studied Scripture for any period of time, that probably the clearest and best treatise on the sin of man was delivered by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, the Roman Christians. Isn't, Isn't it interesting it's just like God, to choose a previously devout Pharisee, a Pharisee of Pharisees, reformed though, transformed though, to provide the most comprehensive answer to the question that he had just posed to the scribes and the Pharisees. In his first five chapters of Romans Paul devoted his entire discussion to man's sin and redemption, reconciliation through Christ Jesus. After systematically explaining man's universal, indicting problem of sin and its penalty, Paul points to trust in the completed work of Jesus as the only answer to escaping sin's sentence to hell. And... You can go ahead and open, if you would, Romans 5 and 6 is where we will 
spend our time this morning. He begins chapter 5 as he wraps up this discussion, uh, or at least the, the arguments about sin's penalty and its answer. In 5.1, he says, Therefore, having made the arguments from chapter 1 through chapter 4, beginning of 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As believers, we know in our head and we understand that we are no longer under sin's penalty of hell. We read it. We read about God's intent in the reading this morning. In fact, it begins, I love that passage. It says, if the Lord should mark iniquity, who can stand? That's really what Paul outlines in the beginning in those first four chapters, Jew or Greek, and that encompasses everyone, obviously. If the Lord should mark iniquity, law or no law, before the law or after the law, it doesn't matter. No one could stand. We've all violated God's holy standard. Praise God that we are justified, forgiven in full because of God's acceptance of Jesus' sacrificial payment on behalf of our sin debt. It's why we're here. So for, it, for the Christian, then, this is a completed work of salvation. Look at the tense of the verbs in chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, past tense, we now have been justified. We now have, we possess today, peace with God. And then jump all the way to the end of chapter 5. This concludes kind of the section that answers the question Jesus asked. In verse 20, he says, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. This is verse 20 and 21. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned to death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to what? Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here lies the answer to the question that Jesus had posed to the Pharisees by a Pharisee. Justification and peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ, verse 1, leading to God's gracious gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ, verses 21. After this answer to all mankind, Jew and Gentile, Paul turns his attention after chapter 5 to something completely different. He's no longer talking about the finished work of salvation only, but he begins to jump into in 6, 7, and 8 the holiness, the required righteousness that God has for the believers. And then where does that lie? Our time this morning will be in chapter 6 predominantly tracing Paul's teaching of being, quote, dead to sin, but alive to God, and just discovering and exploring some of its implications. So now, as opposed to answering the question Jesus asked, we're taking a jump. We are saved by faith, justified in Him. Now what? If justification and redemption 
are explained in the past tense as a completed work in the life of a believer, why do we continue to struggle with temptation and sin? Our experience all too often does not reinforce the truth that we just read of who we are in Christ. You know, there's times when God saves a person and whatever sin that has come to the forefront in their life that has forced them to deal with God, He removes it at times. He chooses to completely heal that particular sin. That enticement is no longer an enticement. It may be drunkenness. It may be something else. But that's not so much the common example. Yes, we're transformed, and that person we just described may not wrestle with that particular enticement or lure, but more common and more often as believers, we continue to wrestle with temptation and sin. And that's where Paul takes us in the next several chapters. I hope that by following the truths laid out, we can do a couple of things. We're going to follow his argument, but I hope that the truths that he lays out and the argument that he makes will help us gain, of understand, gain an understanding of why we continue to wrestle with temptation and sin and why we struggle. But more importantly, I want to lay a groundwork or a foundation of truth, truths that God claims are true, and we can accept by faith that they are true so that our thinking will be changed. We'll begin thinking like God proclaims, thinking the truth, and then in that thinking begin to apply it to our lives, be able to appropriate, appropriate that truth into real wisdom in our walks so that we would be strengthened in our faith to stand firm against temptation and sin. So what does Paul do in chapter 6? Verse 1, he poses a question. We're going to look at the essence of that question. In verse 2, he emphatically answers his question. We'll consider that, those implications. In 3 through 10, he makes a very logical argument pointing to the truths that God has shown him spiritually that drive his answer, that support his answer. So there's spiritual truths that are supporting of his argument. 3 through 10 dives very deep. Some of the statements and truths that have taken place spiritually are tough to wrap our heads around. And I don't pretend that I'm going to give you all of the answers because they're pretty complicated, some of them. Some of them are pretty straightforward, but we'll look at three or four of the truths that Paul lays out in 3 through 10. We won't spend most of our time there so that we can have a grasp of what are the spiritual truths about this concept of being dead to sin and alive to God that really matter, that we need to have our head around as we face life as we live it. And then finally in 11 through 14, Paul moves to three admonitions in light of these spiritual truths. I'd like to pray first, and then we're going to read. I'll back up again to the beginning of, or the last two verses of chapter 5, and then read through verse 14 of chapter 6 as our text this morning. 
Join me in prayer. Lord, this is a wonderful passage that you have put before us. Wonderful in its truths. We accept it from you as the word of God given through the Apostle Paul by the authorship of the Holy Spirit. Lord, in our finite minds and in our stained, sinned minds, we wrestle with these things. Would you help us by faith to first believe them, but then in faith to walk in the truths that we know and see the power of the Holy Spirit who indwells deal with temptation and sin in a way that you have fashioned us now to deal with it. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it is both inspired and profitable. And as we read it and study it, Lord, that you would be glorified, not just in what we know, but what we do with it. In your name we pray. Amen. If you haven't yet opened your scriptures, open it to Romans 5 and 6. I'm going to begin in verse 20. I'll be reading in the NASB. And we read these first two, but I think it's a good transition into chapter 6, 520. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What should we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that... Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, But the life he lives, he lives to God. So also, so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. 
For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. You're probably like me, having read that, think, you really expect to touch that in 30 minutes? A host of, we could take any one of a number of those truths and spend all morning or even longer on them. And I encourage you to study, ponder, read, listen to more sermons and more messages and do your own study on some of these topics. So verse 1 of chapter 6, Paul asks a question, like I said. He says, what shall we say then? As is Paul's manner, he seems to always anticipate what some of his readers might be thinking and how they may respond to what he has said. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, you and I have a quick recoil response, understanding that that logic is twisted. It's just it doesn't make any sense. But bear with me as we think through it and see what others have said, are saying, and are doing. There's kind of two sides of the road that Paul has to deal with. You're familiar with all of the Jewish Christians who in the first century and on continued to wrestle with Yeah, okay, it's by grace, but we've got to do a few other things. And so they would add circumcision, or they would add the works of the law, or they would add festivals, or they would... You have to do these things too. And Paul fought that legalistic side of things that tried to add to grace. Here, he's kind of addressing the opposite side of the street. Well, if it's all grace and all a gift... I can continue to sin, right? And Paul knew that there were those that would accuse him of teaching that sin itself glorifies God by causing his grace to increase. Here's the logic. If salvation is all of God and all of grace, and God is glorified in dispersing that grace... The sinful heart may be inclined to reason. If God delights in justifying the ungodly, as Romans 4 or 5 clearly states he does, then the doctrine of grace puts a premium on ungodliness because it gives God more opportunity to demonstrate his grace. Not only is that twisted in logic, It ignores the entire counsel of God. It is degenerate and warped, but maybe not quite as far-fetched and far-reaching as you may think. I didn't realize it until I was studying this, but you've heard the name Rasputin, a Russian, who lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Claimed to be a believer. I doubted after reading his life. This was his teaching. It's exactly the perverted interpretation. And he gained great notoriety all the way up to being the spiritual advisor 
to the Russian ruling family, the Romanovs. He was their one main spiritual advisor. His life is uh, a litany of sinful activity. He taught and lived what is called and known as the Anton- uh, excuse me, antinomian view of salvation. Through repeated experiences of increasing sinful activity, and I will say false repentance, he taught that the more you sin, the more God gives you grace. So sin with abandon, so God can pour out more grace. Paul had already addressed the same twisted thinking earlier in chapter 3, verse 8. Feel free to turn back there if you'd like. Where he makes the similar statement, he says, For if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, then why not do evil that good may come? He clearly in that passage condemns those who are saying that or purporting that he teaches that, and he refutes it with the strongest denial. As he does in his answer here in chapter 6, look at verse 2. May it never be, exclamation point. Literally and accurately translated, may it never be. How ridiculous. It's the strongest idiom of repudiation in New Testament Greek I'm, I have read. Paul has used that term already three times up to chapter 6 and will use it another six times before he completes the letter. It carries a sense of outrage at the idea of this kind that this kind that the idea of this kind could ever be thought of as true. The suggestion that sin could in any conceivable way be pleasing to God or glorifying to God is abhorrent to the apostle and it ought to be to us. The falsehood of this is almost too self-evident to even be given the dignity of a denial. Actually, rather than argue the point, he poses a rhetorical question based on an axiom of truth. May it never be, how can we who died to sin still live in it? So what's the truth that he's laying out? And that he brings up that we have died to sin. Okay, I understand. And here's his logic. It's pretty straightforward. Death and life cannot coexist. They are mutually exclusive. If someone or something is dead, it cannot also be alive. Vice versa, to alive means that you are not dead. And if you're dead, by definition, you're not alive. It's simple reason. And this truth holds both physically and spiritually. And Paul declares that we have, past tense, died to sin. Throughout the remainder of this argument, as we look at 3 through 10... Paul is speaking here not of the present state of the believer where we know that we are daily engaged in dying to sin and commanded to mortify the deeds of the flesh. Rather, he's establishing past facts 
that God has accomplished. The question of our present state will be taken up further in this same discourse, not just six, but in seven and then in eight. But here Paul's making the argument based on the accomplished work of God that united you and I with Jesus Christ in his death. Jesus died to sin, rose to new life, and in him you too were crucified, were buried, and you've been raised to new life in him. Paul made it pretty clear this is what he's teaching. Galatians 2, what he wrote to the Galatians, you'd know it, probably have memorized it, many of you. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. But Christ who lives in me, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. This is a spiritual reality. However hard to grasp and get our finite minds around, because our new spiritual life with God's Holy Spirit indwelling all resides in a mortal body that carries vestiges of our sin. Our thinking, our patterns of living, our mind, our emotions, and even our will have been contaminated and stained by sinful thinking, sinful patterns, sinful fears. But post-salvation, this body no longer defines who we are in Christ and it will one day be changed, glorified, and in perfect harmony with our eternal, immortal life with God. An immortal body, like Jesus's, with no sinful stain or tendency. Can you wrap your head around that? I can't. It's amazing. Oh, glorious day that we will no longer be stained, have bodies that have any tendency towards sin. I can't imagine waking up and going through a day without battling sin in some manner. As I said, it's hard to grasp, but it is true. From 3, verse 3 through verse 10, Paul lists several spiritual truths that support his argument. These truths have to do with our identification with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Some of them, as I said earlier, dive very, very deep. I, I read several commentaries on a couple of these who came at it from different angles. And you'll see when we get to one of them, I don't have a good answer. I will continue to study it and try to understand it. It's the fourth of the ones. We're going to look at four of them. The fourth one is that Jesus died to sin. How did Jesus die to sin? I understand how we need to die to sin, but he's sinless. How did he die to sin? I don't want to jump into that now or even when we get to it, but it's just to say each of these carries deep spiritual truthful impacts that we do need to believe and know and have faith in. Certainly we can't unpack them all on a Sunday morning. First one, verse 3, the very beginning. Do you not know that all of us 
who have been baptized into Christ Jesus. I know the, I know the sentence continues, but let's stop there. You have been baptized into Christ Jesus. What does that mean? It's a spiritual truth. What does it mean? Baptized into Christ Jesus. The Israelites were baptized into Moses. We understand baptism from a physical expression, and it's a great one. We'll touch on it later. But baptism is identification. We have been made one with Jesus Christ. We have been united with Him in a spiritual union that only God can accomplish. Do you live life knowing that? You are, if you belong to Jesus, you are united with Him. You cannot, it's inextricable, you can't separate it. Paul makes it clear in 1 Corinthians when he's dealing with sexual immorality, he draws the analogy. We know that, for instance, we say it in marriages that the two shall become one. There's this united union that takes place, and it is spiritual. So is our union with Jesus. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, beginning in 15, says, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. What a truth. We are forever and inextricably married spiritually to Jesus Christ. We need to understand this, know this, and ponder its implications. Secondly, verse 3b through 5, we are identified in Christ's death and resurrection. All of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death. Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism in death. So that, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in newness of life. For if we've become united with Him in the likeness of His death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. Two historical facts that God claims spiritually are true that we have a hard time grasping. Too wonderful, too amazing. But the basic and obvious reality is that we have died with Christ in order that we have life through Him and can live like Him. It is as if we were taken back 2,000 years and made to participate in the Savior's crucifixion, His death, His burial, which is just the seal, excuse me, it's just the seal of His death and His resurrection. where the penalty of our sin was paid. And then as Christ was resurrected, we were resurrected with him, enabling us then to walk in this, quote, newness of life. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. You've got to say, in what way? How am I dead? Where did I die? Nevertheless, I live. I'm not dead. I'm talking to you. 
So how did I die with Christ? But it claims here in Romans 6 that it's a spiritual reality. God looks at me and sees me as having died with Jesus Christ and having been raised with him. Newness, by the way, is not a, it is complete transformation. Newness in quality and character, not new and improved, a completely different quality and character. Just as sin characterized our old life, now righteousness characterizes our new life. That is who you are in Christ, and that's what God sees. Not new clothes or a makeover or even a thorough renovation, but a new creation. Paul to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, this person is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. So we were baptized and united with Christ. And part of that unification, part of that identification is is his death, burial, and resurrection. And then thirdly, our body of sin has been destroyed. If I hadn't already studied this, I might say, that sounds heretical. Your body of sin, are we talking about sinless perfection for the believer? No, that is not taught in Scripture. I'm not teaching that. Romans 6, 6, and 7, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin, and I want to highlight this word, might. That's a poor translation of the meaning of this. That our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the one who has died is freed from sin. The fact of our death... In Christ, and the freedom from being slaves to sin has taken place. You are no longer a slave to sin. You've been set free. That's a fact. Might carries with it the possibility that it might not happen, and that's not the sense here at all. The spiritual truth that it might be done away with or that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's just a, a, it doesn't transfer the real thought of the passage of the, the truth that's being taught that God has put to death your old nature. You have a completely new nature. Again, we're not yet dealing with, so that doesn't seem to align with my experience. We're not dealing with that yet. I understand that. Chapter 7 is all about that. Paul understands the struggle in today's Christian life, wrestling with our thoughts, with temptation, with sinful tendencies. I think I made it clear, but lest I be misunderstood, nowhere in Scripture is sinless perfection for the believer ever taught. In Paul, in Old Testament saints, anywhere. Until the day we're glorified and put off these mortal bodies, we will wrestle in some manner 
with sin because of these what I called vestiges. David Kemp used to say, our humanness. It's that we carry our humanness, and that's, what's, that's the only thing that Satan can go after now. Fourthly, and this is a tough one, verses 8 through 10 say that Christ died once for all. He only died once, and that was a death to sin. The first part of verses 8 through 10 is pretty straightforward. Let's look at it together. If we've died with Christ, we believe also that we will live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin. Once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. We both believe and understand that we died with Christ now and that we were raised to live with him. Unfathomable, but we trust and believe it. God said it. This death he died, it says he died to sin. But the life he lives, he lives to God. The question is, in what way did he die to sin? He was sinless. Several commentators, as I said, speculate on exactly what it may mean. He was not only sinless, but he was never mastered by sin, never committed a sin of the least sort. And we know clearly from the context, since it is, has to do with our identification and union with Christ, that in whatever way he died to sin and defeated it, we also have died to sin. That's the whole context. None of the explanations I've read from men you respect and I do too really satisfied a number of my questions. What we can say is that Jesus conquered the power and, or the penalty certainly, and the power of sin. He conquered them. The penalty in his death, in paying the penalty for our sin, and the power of sin by us being in him, we are now free not to have to sin. And whatever the exact explanation, and I hope clarity comes over time, whatever it is, it is stated as truth. Jesus has died to sin and we'll no we know he won't die again. You can't die twice. And that he has shared that freedom of the penalty and that freedom of the power with us. Thanks be to God. Okay, so as we begin to wrap up, we're going to turn now to the admonitions in verses 11 through 14. There's only three that we're going to focus on. The first begins with just the first statement. I don't know what your translation says at the beginning of 11. Even so or so is how he begins this transition from declarations of truth to an admonition of believers. He uses this transitional phrase, even so, as he moves from one to the other. Could be translated in a similar way or likewise, in light of this, in the same way, keeping these truths at the forefront of your thinking, 
It's intended to point our thinking back to the truths that he has just delineated so that it will be what informs our thinking and our choices. In essence, he's saying, if we don't know and fully believe these things that I've just told you, you will, it will make no sense what I'm about to say. There's a principle here that is really, I'm thankful for. God has chosen that scriptural exhortation is always built on spiritual knowledge. Scriptural exhortation, what God demands and asks for throughout Scripture of you, is built on spiritual knowledge. There's a truth behind it. For instance, be holy. Why? For I am holy. He gives us the, he didn't have to do that. He gives us the reasons for his exhortation and admonishments to us. That's to me awesome. In this case, the truth that we are spiritually dead to sin and the reality that we are spiritually alive to Christ is not some abstract concept for us to try and verify in life. It is divinely revealed truths that should form the foundation of our Christian living. Because these things are true, by faith, God has said them, I believe them, and that will begin to strengthen by the Spirit's power, my walk. By the way, when you talk about what you know in spiritual, in scriptural or spiritual knowledge, just glance back in the preceding ten verses at least four times. There's more than that, but at least four times he references some form of what you know or what you believe. Verse three. Let me get it in front of me. That would help. Verse 3, he begins, right? Do you not know? Verse 6, we know that our old self. Verse 8, in the middle, we believe that we will also live with him. 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead. If the word of God is perfect, if it can restore the soul, if it is living and active, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, if it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, as Paul writes to Timothy, if it instructs in godly wisdom, we need to know and understand and believe what it says. The blessed man in Psalms 1 what characterizes his life? He's the one who delights in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. First admonition then is pay attention to what you know. Study the scriptures. Meditate in your devotion. Spend time meditating in prayer over the scriptures. Secondly, Consider, Paul says, 
<clears throat> Even so, we must now consider ourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God. It's actually an accounting type term that means to count. We might say count on it. It's an accounting term. Calculate it. Take it into account. Take it into consideration. Take it to heart. Heed it. You know it's true because God has said it. Now apply it to life. Believe it. Let it be what drives your faith. When we honestly look at our lives after salvation, it's obvious that sin's contamination is still very, very real and very much with us. Because of our experience, it's difficult to comprehend that we no longer have the same fallen sin nature and that our new nature is actually divine according to God. It's hard to realize that we are truly indwelt with His Holy Spirit and God now calls us His children and deems us fit to live eternally with Him in His heaven. I didn't say, will deem you fit or deem me fit. He deems us fit, not because you did anything or I did anything, but in Christ we are fit today to dwell with Him forever in eternity. That's crazy. I don't feel that way, but this is not about what I feel. It's not after we grow in godliness that we become acceptable in the beloved. We are accepted in the beloved. I think most, and when I do, struggle, those who struggle with believing these truths do so because they continue in a continual battle over sin. I'm constantly seeing a contradiction of that truth. And so I try to reason, why am I, why am I so tempted? Why do I stumble and fall? Are you sure Christ did a work in me? Paul's answer here is not some sort of psychological mind game where if I say it over and over and over and believe it, it'll happen. Against better judgment. This is, God works through what we know especially what we trust that he has said that we know. We know we are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus because God's word declares it so. These are truths of faith and must be affirmed in our walk of faith. Just four quick practical results from considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. I'm just going to fly through these. We can have confidence in the midst of temptation. With sin's tyranny and slavery broken, which is a fact, we can successfully resist temptation in God's power. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, There's no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will with the temptation provide a way to escape that we will be able to bear it or endure it. Secondly, we have confidence that we cannot sin our way out of God's grace. John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus speaking says, My sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. 
and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What a promise. Thirdly, we have confidence in the face of death when we consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Jesus, again, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies... will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Fourthly, and maybe rather obvious, no matter what happens in this life or how disastrous it may be or appear or feel, we know that God's always using it for His glory and our blessing because we belong to Him and we live in Him. Romans eight twenty eight. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, for those who are called according to His purpose. All of these things and many, many more are true because we are alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thirdly is the word present. Six, twenty, um, right after, uh, in verse 12 to 14, Therefore, sin is not to reign over you in your mortal bodies so that you obey its lusts and do not go on presenting the parts of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness but present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your bodies as instruments of righteousness to God for sin shall not be master over you you are not under the law but under grace here sin is personified as some sort of king who reigns He's on, he previously was on the throne of your life, reigning over you, controlling you, demanding how you and I respond and what we do. And sin is still determined to attempt to be your king, to control you and to reign even the believer's life like he did prior to salvation. Our admonition is to, we don't have to let that happen. Do not let sin reign. It has no right to. To reign any longer. It has no power to control to control you and me unless we choose to obey its lusts. Peter makes a similar appeal in 1 Peter 2. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Beloved, I urge you as foreigners and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. As I said, it's the only remaining beachhead where sin and Satan can attack a Christian and is in his mortal body. And one day that body will be glorified and forever out of sin's reach. It's, it's actually because that's where the warfare takes place that Paul tells us in Romans 12, I urge you, therefore, to present your bodies, not your spirit, not your soul, present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of service. In 
the course of exhorting the Roman believers to live lives pleasing to God in chapter 13, Paul makes the following statement. You've read this probably. It's very practical. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. If you ponder provision, it's preparedness beforehand. I'm going to make preparation and provision. I'm going to provide for something. If chocolate is your weakness, don't go into Giardelli's. Over the years, I've seen a host of applications in my own life from this one imperative that if we'll prayerfully meditate on it, we'll offer opportunities to not put ourselves in situations where we know we have a weakness. Paul says, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Throughout the New Testament, believers, as believers, we're admonished to take action to guard against our fleshly inclination. And in the final verse, verse 14, Paul changes from admonition to declaration, offering these encouraging words regarding the matter of sin's power. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. We know that the law is good, it is holy, it is righteous, but it can never break sin's penalty or sin's power. It can only rebuke, constrain, and condemn. We're no longer under the condemnation of God's law, but now under the redeeming power of His grace. It's in this power of His grace that the Lord calls us to live. Let's pray. Father, these are amazing truths that we wrestle to wrap our head around. We count them as true spiritually, Lord, that those who belong to you have been given a divine nature that responds to you in righteousness, no longer having to succumb to temptation and sin. Lord, we didn't spend a lot of time understanding the present-day wrestles that we have over temptation and sin. But may the truths of what you've already accomplished motivate us to walk in a manner that's pleasing to you. In your name we pray. Amen.